everybody doing? My name's Josh. I'm a pastor here. I get to preach and teach most of the time. Just real quick, uh, just to clarify what Casey was talking about. These are redemption communities. So in the church world, uh, my wife makes fun of me, but church leaders love to name stuff, and they like to be unique. So this is basically small group ministry. Churches call it life, fellowship group, community group, connection, blah, 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 blah. And it all comes down to these are smaller groups that meet throughout the week in homes. And as you can see, we're kind of east heavy right now because when we planted this church in January, January, a lot of the families that moved out were in that east region, except for my boy Anthony Hernandez representing the west side, west of I-17, holding down the fort of the avenue. So thank you, Anthony. So if you are in that kind of western section and you'd like to host or facilitate or kind of open up your home to be a part of this ministry, we also need that as well because these are going to fill up real quick because we had five last when we kicked off and they were all full. So just know these are going to fill up quick. Uh, we gave these so you could sign up by the end of August. These will be up and rolling. And what most groups are going to be doing is kind of diving into the sermon after the fact, in a home, around meals, praying for each other, doing life together. So if you want to grow in your faith at all, and this is your church, RCs, what's an RC? It's like a small group. Redemption communities are how you do that. So make sure you sign up. If you have questions, you can talk to me or Anthony or just about anyone who looks like they've been here for a while. They'll be able to tell you about an RC. So that's what we got going on. We are in the Gospel of John now. Some of you are like, wow, we just, we were in Nehemiah. We were, and now we're back in the Gospel of John. And we're going to be in this book all the way through the middle of next year with a few caveats. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do John chapters 12 and 13 for the next four weeks. And then in a couple weeks, what happens is the colleges all kind of ramp back up down in Tucson, Flagstaff, GCU, and we wanted to do a specific series around that time when the college students are back in called Countercultural Conviction. So we're going to talk about how we, the church, Redemption Church, views culture and specifically these sort of very controversial hot-button topics. How do we wade the water that we are currently all swimming in? How do we walk through this together? So we're going to talk about gender. We're going to talk about sexuality. We're going to talk about the vulnerable. We're going to talk about um, salvation and what we think salvation is and isn't. So we're going to do that in a couple weeks, and then we're going to dive back into John, kind of Thanksgiving time, and then we're going to jump into Advent together and then Start January, we're going to be back in the Gospel of John. But the Gospel of John, we have been in. We started it a long time ago before this church even started. But we are walking through the Gospel of John. And where we land this morning is actually a pretty good spot to kick back up. Here's why. I've been watching the Olympics with my kids. And I used to think, woo, we got one Olympics fan. Nice. (laughs) I always think I'm kind of chill and patient as a dad. And then I realize I'm not chill and or patient. Because I watch the Olympics and the kids just start asking questions. Questions questions i'm like shot your trap just watch because if we get to the end they're going to recap it and you're going to have all your questions answered and where we land in john is sort of like the recap to the first half of the book so it's kind of got two chapters as far as uh the writer is concerned so the first one is called the book of signs it's chapters one through 12 it's jesus doing his public ministry his signs his wonders everything that kind of proves his godness that's where we're wrapping up here and chapter 13 now starts the book of glory glory meaning he's now starting his return back to his father to his original glory so we end this first section and what we land on is a recap what's happened so far so if you didn't watch any olympics and you jump at the end and nbc's doing a recap that's sort of what we just heard Michaela read there is a recap of chapters 1 through 12. So it's pretty easy sort of let's walk back in to this together. And here's what I'm going to do 
this morning for us. There's two summaries in this text we look at. A summary of the people and a summary of Jesus' message. So we're going to look at the two summaries, and then I have two questions for us, and we're going to pray our way out of here. So I want to pray and ask God to show up in this Gospel of John for us this morning. So let's pray together. God, you say your word is inspired, breathed out by you. Whether we're looking at Nehemiah 13, whether we're looking at John 12, wherever we open this book, we encounter your word, inspired, breathed out, authoritative, gifted to us by you so that we may know you and know ourselves and know this world properly. So God, as we enter back into John, I do not want us to be flippant as if this is just any other book, but it is the book that brings life and light and salvation. And it brings us answers to all the important questions we would ever ask. So God, as we enter this book again, not because of anything I bring to the table, but because of what sits in this word, I pray that you meet us again this morning. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said it. Amen. All right, two summaries. So the first summary is the first section there is a summary statement of the belief of the Jews. What's their response? So the first summary we give, again, Jesus had done his public ministry, and now John is sort of, as a documentary writer, director, like, all right, here's the summary statement of everything we've seen up to this point. Verse 37, let's read what he says about Jesus' ministry so far. Though he had done... So many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Stop right there. That's just amazing. Though he had done, I love the language, so many signs before them, they, primarily the Jewish audience that he came to, still did not believe. What's their response of Jesus? They still did not believe. The book of John is about signs and wonders and Jesus proving himself. What are some of the signs? So in chapter 2, he turned water into wine, his first miracle. He makes a party even better, and he shows, here's what I came to do. Take old stuff and make it new. Take broken stuff and make it fixed. I came to restore everything that's broken because of your sin. Look at this. First miracle, water into wine. They still did not believe. Chapter 4, he heals the official son who was dying. Another sign. Look at I bring dead people to life. Chapter 5. He heals the lame man at the pool of Bethsaida. A guy who had been neglected by society. Jesus interacts with him lovingly. Restores him. Like, they still didn't believe. Chapter 6. This is where we actually kicked off our church. Is He provides bread in the desert to 5,000 with just a little bit of loaves and a couple sardines. And he provides abundant meals for them. There's people that have seen each of these signs. Like there's a guy on the outskirts of each of these. There's a woman kind of watching. Next one. He heals a man born blind. He gives him sight. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead as his ultimate like, I can do anything in this world. And then John chapter 20, the end of this says, he did so many signs that we don't even have enough paper to write down everything he did. But he did all these so that you might believe. Verse 37, though we had done so many signs before them, they still did not 
believe. That's just sobering. Like Christianity is the most beautiful thing in the world. Jesus offers the greatest gift in the world, a relationship with God and new life. And he's patient and he's kind and he's loving and he's gracious and he's all these things. And they still did not believe. Let's keep reading. Why? Verse 38. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What's he doing there? He's quoting Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 53.1. And if, you, if you've been around church at all, Isaiah 53 is a very popular, famous passage because it talks about the suffering servant. It talks about the humanity of Jesus. He was this man that nobody looked at and saw anything impressive in, but he was the hope of the world. Isaiah 53. And this is quoting from there. He's going to be revealed. And what's their response? Who has believed? The rhetorical answer is no one. They did not believe so that the prophecy might be fulfilled that Isaiah said that he's going to come and they are not going to believe. Like just, we got to sit with that. They did not believe. That's the nature of humanity apart from the spirit coming down and opening our eyes is we just won't believe. The Jewish people had everything at their disposal in terms of God-given gifts, the word. The ordinances, the commandments, festivals, everything pointed to Jesus the Messiah, and they did not believe because they did not believe, and it was spoken of by Isaiah thousands of years prior that this is how it was going to go down. Part of what the, a strange conviction that came to me in just studying this passage is around my parenting. Like, I, I'm reading this passage, and everything Jesus said was right, correct. All of his prophecy was fulfilled perfectly. He threaded the needle perfectly on everything he was supposed to do as the Messiah of the Jewish people. And the people watch him and they say, uh, we don't believe. And I just, a guy brought this up. He's like, it kind of reminds me of parenting. I assume like the solution to my kids is more words for me. And this should just show like we are a stubborn people. We don't need more words necessarily. We need more Holy Spirit opening our hearts to hear the few words that we've already brought in. But the Jewish people would not believe. Let's keep reading. Verse 39, it gets a little more complicated and deep and serious. 39 says it this way. Therefore, they could not believe. And again, he, pro he quotes Isaiah again, this time from Isaiah 6. He says, for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes, he being God, and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So here he quotes from Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. What's the context of Isaiah 6? Again, it's another famous passage if you're in the Christian uh, subculture for any length of time. Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord. He's like, during the days of King Uzziah, I saw him high and lifted up, and he comes down. He sees the glory of the Lord. He sees Jesus Christ's glory before him, and the foundations of where he's at shake, and he's in this moment. And he says, whoa, I am an unclean man with unclean lips. He says, this message must go out about the glory of God. Who's going to go? And Isaiah says, send me, God. I'll go. I'll tell them. He says, all right, here's your mission. Go tell them. And here's what's going to happen. 
Their eyes will be blinded. Their ears will be shut. Their hearts will be turned off. Your message will actually, actually be used to harden their hearts. Like, that doesn't sound great. Send me. All right. And then it goes on. It's like, well, how long is this going to take? He's like, until everything lays desolate. Keep preaching this message that is bringing a hardening of the heart. Anybody signing up to be Isaiah? Answer no. Hey, Josh, you want to plant a church? Yes. Why do you want to plant a church? I want to see people come to Jesus. Nope. Actually, every time you open your mouth, people's hearts are going to be a little more hard towards your message and your gospel and your Jesus. And you're going to keep getting up week after week and saying the same thing, and it's going to keep hardening their heart. They could not believe because their hearts were being hardened. Now, we just have to, so we come from a, a reformed theological stance here at this church. If you don't know what that means, great. It means you haven't been tainted by a lot of Christian talk. But here's what that means. We believe mightily in the sovereignty of God. We believe he's in control, like more than most people are comfortable with. He's sovereign over all things. And as you navigate coming to terms with what God says about his own sovereignty, you just got to let the Bible dictate how you walk this path. And you got to do it with grace and humility. But what we see in this is God's sovereignty being used to harden the hearts of people. Like, what do you, how do you make sense of that? Like, here's the basic issue with that is that seems really unfair. That seems a lot unfair. Like, everything I've heard about God and my little bit of hearing about God is he's loving and he's kind and he's and now you're saying he's hardening the heart of his people. What do we make of this? Well, remember how this started. I'll do my best. But verse 37 is they did not believe. God is starting with their unbelief. He's not implanting some foreign virus into their heart. They contain the virus that is unbelief within and of themselves. So as we're talking about humanity, there is this core issue at the heart of all of us, the Jews are just highlighting it for us, is we don't believe. We are blind to the things of God. Our ears are closed to the things of God. Ephesians says we are spiritually dead, which means we're not alive and in tune and listening for and hoping for the things of God. We are dead to those things. So verse 37 says the unbelief starts with them. The second thing I'd say is he's not hardening neutral hearts. Does that make sense? It's not like a blank slate of a heart there. He's hardening hearts that are already turned in of themselves. C.S. Lewis has this great quote. There's basically two ways to live this life. You're either going to say, your will be done, God, or my will be done. Your will be done, my will be done. And these people are saying, my will be done. I will not believe. I've seen every miracle along the way, and I will not believe. And their hearts get Kind of the most famous, I actually had a great conversation with a, a guy fresh out of college who got a th theological degree, and he was, we were talking about this very thing, and he actually got a little emotional, like, talking about God hardening hearts, and this idea of God's sovereignty over all things. He's like, gosh, it's just really hard to, you know, accept, and it is, like, if we're honest with ourselves. 
And the, the place a lot of people go to say, look, at this God does this is Pharaoh. And it's true, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But if you go read through it, it's sort of like this back and forth that says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then God does all this interaction. He's like, believe, believe, believe. And then another section says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then you read a little bit more. And then Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. So this hardening is God taking what's already in there and through his gospel, hardening some hearts. Like Corinthians says it this way. There's this fragrance that comes from the gospel. To those who are coming to life, it's a fragrance of life. To those who are perishing, meaning those who don't believe, it's an aroma unto death. Translation, their hearts are being hardened, even as they hear the most beautiful message ever about a God who loves us so much in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's ultimately, there's a pastor, he actually preached here a while back, Seth Trout. He says this, until you can emotionally come to the point where you think it would have been fair for God to send everyone to hell, this doctrine is always going to seem unfair to you. So until you can, and I'm not saying you need to be there before you leave today. Like faith is a process. Big theological truths and meat that we're trying to take in, it takes time to kind of digest. But here's the reality. Until you can come to the point where you say, it would be fair for God to send everyone to hell, me included, those I love included, that would be perfectly fair. Until you can land at some sort of landing ground there, this is going to seem really, really unfair. That God would harden hearts. He's just taking what's already there and letting them be what they want to be. Even Romans is this beautiful, beautiful theological sort of discourse on life. And it starts with sin. And it describes sin. And they went to these lusts and these desires and talking about humanity. Here's all the ways they were sinning and rebelling and all this stuff. And then it says, therefore, God gave them away to their desire. Meaning he took the unbelief and the rebellion in there and he said, all right, your will be done. And people say, but that's not fair. Until you can land at the point that any of us receiving mercy is the exception and a mighty gift from God that we don't deserve. This is going to be really, really difficult. And just know, I always want to be a church where we can start conversations, not where the conversation gets closed, just because I said something from up here that really doesn't sit well. Like we're all wrestling through all sorts of things that this word tells us. This is just another thing that we're all sifting through in various degrees. But so far, here's the summary statement. They did not believe. And then they could not believe as their hearts were being hardened, even in this moment as Jesus is performing miracles. And then what do we see in verse 41? The third thing we see is they believe-ish, but not as much as they love the praise of man. Let's read verse 41 together. Isaiah said these things. What things? What he just said. Because he saw his glory, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. Isaiah said these because he saw the glory of Jesus, and he said, I must say these things. Verse 42, now in this present moment, what about the people around us? Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43, summary statement of humanity. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. 
What is glory? It's, the idea is weight. They love the weightiness that comes from the approval of men, specifically in this Pharisees, more than they love the weight and the approval that comes from Jesus through the gospel. That is sobering. They love the glory for man more than they loved. Who's he talking about? Two specific people. Nicodemus, he's this sort of shadowy character. He comes in John 3. John 3, 16, the most famous verse in all the world is a Nicodemus conversation going on with Jesus. He comes secretly. He's like, I don't want to lose my glory with men, but I really want to figure you out, Jesus. And then you keep seeing him bounce in and out through these dark little like shadowy times. Jesus, tell me about you. Jesus. And the other guy is Joseph of Arimathea. If you look at the end, he's the guy that brings Jesus to the tomb. He shows up at the end. Jesus is dead. And he says, he did not come out in the light because he feared the Pharisees. And what's John saying here? We've got people who don't believe. We've got hearts being hardened. And we've got this current reality where people are weighing. Do I want the glory from man or do I want the glory of God? And they're kind of sitting in this moment. That's the summary statement of the Jewish response. Do you love the glory of man more than the glory of God? I'll say it this way. We all do. It's the basic wrestle of the human heart. Like Fridays is our chore day at the house because Saturday is Sabbath. So Friday I make my kids just do all sorts of stuff. I'm like, all right, I need to have a little theological reasoning behind this so I can really kind of make them work hard. I'm like, all right, boys, why do we do yard work? And why do we clean the house? Two reasons. And Elijah said, to impress people. And I said, <laughs> and why do we do anything? To impress people. Like, I can think in my house when I have guests, who comes into my house that I, like, want to impress? As a pastor, I can think about a thousand ways my heart goes awry as I want to impress people. Oh, church plan, how big is it? Uh, round up, it's like a lot. <laughs> Why? Because we love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Summary statement of humanity right there in this very moment. And with that, Jesus then gives his summary sermon. Now, here's what's fascinating. Picture your Jesus. Before the foundations of the earth, before in eternity past, you elected that you would come and put your love on a certain people and you would bring them in by your grace and you would love and care for them and they would be your people and you would be their God. You had this wonderful plan for all of time and you come down and John 1 through 12 then says, and they did not believe you. They would not believe you. They loved the glory from Joe Schmo the Pharisee more than the glory that they got from knowing you. How would we respond? Here's how Jesus responds with one more gospel invitation. With a summary statement of all that he said up to this point, he says, here's why I came. Here is a summary statement. Like, what's his posture? It's like this. When I proposed to Aubrey, I planned it for a long time. And I was living with a guy that came in a few months after he graduated, became an army ranger, and he did all these tours in Iraq, all these logistical things. He's just a master. So I had like a six-month planning process for my proposal. I had like 16 people involved. I had an army ranger with a thing in his ear, like walking us through the whole night so I could get to the point where I'm on Trinity River in Fort Worth, Texas, and I get on my knee and ask Aubrey, will you 
marry me. I knew exactly what she was going to say. As we think about this last sermon Jesus gives, I want to picture the posture he has. He is not begging like some God who just needs more people in heaven because he's lonely. And there's not this anger sort of, how dare you? It's more like a proposal. I love you. Will you believe me? Please. What I'm saying is this. Believe it. It's like the prodigal son. A beautiful story. Two sons go out. One of them just loses his mind. What does the father do? He runs out of the house, goes to meet him. That is what Jesus is doing here. He's running out of the house one last time with a sermon for his people. And here is what he says. Verse 44. Let's read his final sermon to his people. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my world words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that this is his commandment, his, his eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And sermon. And that's the end of Jesus' public ministry. Next week, he's washing the disciples' feet, and everything from that point on is just him and his disciples preparing for the cross. Jesus' last statement to the world and to his Jewish brethren, whoever believes in me, come. I'm inviting you to light. Let's just walk through. Jesus, verse 44, he cries out. Every time that verb there, cried out, is used as a public declaration. Jesus cried out. Now, here's what's fascinating just about the Bible in general. It's written by men inspired by the Holy Spirit and arranged by men inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when did this sermon actually happen? I don't really know, but I think as a good director, producer, writer, he places it here on purpose as a way to say, just so you know, this is what I've been saying all along. Here is my final statement. I have come. Believe. I am the light of the world. Believe. You were in darkness. Believe. You were under judgment. I came to save. Believe. 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 So it's placed here so that we can kind of say, what was Jesus' big idea? Verse 44 through verse 50. Here's what Jesus had to say to the world. He cries out. And who does he cry out to? Whoever believes in me. Whoever Whoever believes in me. This is why certain people in Reformed doctrine get all messed up because they limit their call of God to just, well, I don't know, I don't know. Well, Jesus all the time says, whoever believes in me, whoever in this room, whoever believes in me, man or woman, religious or not religious, I don't care what you were doing last night, what you were doing this morning, whoever believes in me, what your political affiliation is, how many times you've been canceled, 
Like I think one of the gifts the church is going to give in the years to come is all these people who've been popping off online for so long and they've all been canceled by the various people. They've been bit by the dogs they created. They're going to come here and they're going to hear a message that says whoever. Not whoever threaded the needle perfectly on whatever political discourse or gender discourse or this discourse or this discourse perfectly. Whoever believes gets Jesus. That is amazing. And that's his final statement to his Jewish people as they're sitting there in their unbelief. Whoever believes, we don't stop with this message. My favorite pastor, if I could grow up one day and be a guy, I would be this guy, Ray Orland. He hunts, he fishes, and he's a pastor who's way better than me. And here's his opening statement to his church every Sunday. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. At some point, we'll probably just steal it and use it as our opening statement. (laughs) To all who are weary and need rest... To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel lost and worthless and wonder if God cares. To all who fail and desire victory. To all who sin and need a savior. To all who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And to whoever else will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, the lover of his enemies, the defender of the weak, and the justifier of those who have no excuses left. Whoever believes. Whoever. Who's the audience? Whoever hears these words. Verse 44, 45, what do they get? Believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. What's Jesus saying? You're not just believing in me. You get God through me. What does this world need? It needs more God. How do you get God? Through Jesus. How do you know what God's like? You look at Jesus. How do you know what God sounds like? You listen to Jesus. How do you know what it feels like to be around God? You get close to Jesus. How do you get God? Through Jesus. He is saying and doing the things of God because he is God. Him who sent me. Do you want God? And I think most Christians who've been at it for a while get that you need Jesus for the salvation piece. I've got some junk. I need Jesus to take care of it. But for life, like I listened to this one older pastor give advice to this one guy that I thought was just beautiful. He's like, how do I get better at pastoring? And he said, get to know God. It's like it'd be the same answer if you were a plumber or a dad or a grandpa or an empty nester, or whatever. How do you get better at anything in life? You get to know God. And how do you get to know God? Through Jesus, period. We need to know God, and we get to know God because Jesus is so beautiful and so gracious and so inviting. He invites us into relationship with his Father in heaven. But he offers more than that. Verse 46, what's in his message? I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is the only way out of darkness. This world is dark. And not like just pockets of darkness that we try to avoid. Like my kids are super sensitive to media. Like it was rough watching the NBA playoffs because every commercial, M. Night Shyamalan, stupid new movie, they're like, ah. Like there's a level of Christianity that sees that's the dark stuff. It's like, no, it's all, we're all born in darkness. When I don't listen to my kids attentively from my heart, that's dark. When I compare myself to others, that's dark. When you look down on someone, that's dark. And Jesus, I have called you out of that darkness 
into light. What else is he on? Verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. Interesting. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. What's Jesus saying there? This is part of why the hardening of a heart is our own fault. He says, you already sit under judgment. I came to save the world who is under judgment right now. Every man, woman, child sits under the judgment of God because of our own actions, our own will, our own decisions, our own sin. We sit under judgment. I did not come to judge, Jesus, Jesus says. I will do that on the last day. My word will be your judge. But for now, I came to save. And those of us who believe in Jesus have been saved from the thing that we need to be saved from, the judgment of God on our life. Like Ecclesiastes says, every thought, word, action, deed will be brought to the light and judged one day. That is, is right. And Jesus says, I wiped all that off. Now it's just you and me. I've removed the judgment from you. I took it on the cross for you. That's amazing. And what a, he rounds it out with this. His, verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Again, he's just saying, I only say what God says. Verse 50. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. What is Jesus' final statement to his Jewish people as they sit in their own belief? I wrote this summary statement. Whoever believes can know God, get out of darkness, out from judgment, and enjoy eternal life with Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's his final statement to a group of people that rejected him, rejected him, rejected him, sent him to a cross. And he says, whoever believes in me gets life with God, out from judgment, out from darkness, you can have me. And that's the end of Jesus' public ministry right there. Now, i got two questions to end with. Here's the first one. As you navigate this, especially the first part, which has some hard stuff, what do you believe personally about belief and unbelief? Like, what's your theological view of belief and unbelief? Because this passage speaks directly to the heart of how belief and unbelief works in the life of a believer and a non-believer. I wrote down some questions here. Here's the first one. Do you believe that belief or unbelief in Jesus even matters? Like some of you got invited by somebody. And if it's this church or the Mormon church or the Jewish synagogue down the road, it doesn't really matter. Because it's just a religious statement being said from a religious leader. Do you believe that belief in Jesus actually matters? Another way to say it, that there are actual consequences to belief or unbelief in Jesus. Like, what's at stake in that question? Think about for you or for your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, your friends. What's at stake? According to this, the world is in darkness and under judgment, and they don't even know it. And the only hope is Jesus. And we all face the ultimate judgment one day. We're going to die and face God one day. Do you believe that belief actually matters? Here's the second thing. Do you believe that we're blank slates? Tabula rasa. 
is the philosophical way to say we are all just clean slates. We come into life, and life starts to impose itself on us. So my kids, Elijah, Roman, Jude, Ozzy, are blank slates. They're neutral. That is not the biblical way humans are described. It says you come into this world like your father, Adam. You can become in Christ through faith, but we are all, by birth, sinners, depraved, unable to please God or to do the things of God. Do you believe that we are blank slates? If so, that is not the biblical teaching. We are disposed against God from the beginning. Here's the next thing that I was just praying through a lot as I read this. Do you believe that belief or unbelief just kind of stays stagnant? Do you believe that it's a... It's not growing or changing. According to this, the Jews saw the signs of Jesus. And their unbelief is growing harder and harder and harder. On the flip side, I think our belief can grow. Like two times Jesus says he marvels. And Jesus marveled at two things. The faith of people. Jesus saw the faith of this person and he marvels. And he sees the faith of this person, and he marvels. Why? Because faith, belief or unbelief, is growing. Unbelief is getting harder and more cold towards God. Or our belief, our hearts are softening, and we're more open to God and the things of God. Here's the next question. Do you believe that unbelief can be fixed by you or something else in this world? I live on a street where I've asked everyone their religious standing in as sly a way as I can do it. Hey, what do you believe about Jesus? I'm not a Jesus guy. Got it. What religion are you? I'm not a religion. Got it. So I know all my neighbors, and not a single person believes Jesus the way I believe Jesus. Now, my work now as a missionary sent by God to this part of town, as we all are, my default is to think something inside of me is the solution. I just need to say it this way. Or I just need to love them enough and get to the point where they know I'm a cool enough guy and I'm, you know, na, 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 na. no. Unbelief is only cured by the Holy Spirit, brought forth through the praying, desperate prayers of his people, asking God to open the eyes of the blind. That's the only way belief comes. Here's my final question. This is kind of a big one. How do you hold the tension of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in this discussion? You're like, I don't even get the question. Yeah, it's a hard question. God hardens hearts. People choose not to believe. God hardens their hearts. God is sovereign over all things, and yet all my decisions matter. And I will give an account for my decisions that I made. And yet God is sovereignly using every decision I ever make towards his will to be done on this earth. How do you hold that tension? Some people arrogantly say, oh, it makes total sense to me. No, it doesn't. Most people I meet are like, I'm kind of like in the middle. It's like the way I say, how good are you at being whatever they give? Like, I'm like a C plus. It's a way to say I'm not terrible, and I don't want to sound arrogant. So I'm like a C plus on this. The Apostle Paul describes this in the book of Romans. And at the end of it, he says, how unsearchable are your judgments? How inscrutable are your ways? Have you guys ever heard to use unscrutable in any sentence? It just means you can't trace all the points. We can't trace this. We can't dodge it and ignore it. But we sit in this beautiful tension where there is unbelief in this world. 
And there is a sovereign God who is working all things together for his good. And I don't, how does it all fit together? I don't know. I'm a C-plus student. But we sit and we say, how inscrutable are your ways? You are good. But here's the last question I want to ask, and this is far more important than the first one. Like, you could go to heaven without ever answering that first question. Here's the second one. What do you actually believe? Not what do you believe about belief, Christian. Like, what's your theological stance on how this goes down? We can talk after if you want. But what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe he is who he says he is? I have come to save the world. I have come to take you out of darkness into a marvelous light, the Apostle Peter says. I have come to bring you to God. I and the Father are one. If you see me, you've seen the Father. Do you believe that about Jesus? Some of you in this room, a lot of you, I pray, know that, that you've met Jesus. You put your trust and faith in him. But I also know this. Some of you have not. Some of you younger people are like, I'm just going to kick the can down the road. I'm kind of going to do my thing for a while. What you're looking for is life, and life is only found in Jesus. You are in darkness. You are under judgment until you place your faith in Jesus. That is the summary statement of Jesus' words here. Do you believe him? Yes or no? We're not going to do hands raised or anything like that, but for you in your own heart. Here's how I want to end. I want to end with some just quiet prayer alone. So I want everyone to close your eyes. As Jesus wraps up his statement here, some of you believe this, and some of you have experienced the light and the freedom and the relationship with Jesus. I want to give space right now for you to just thank God in your heart that you know Jesus, that your life is not marked by unbelief anymore, but by trust and belief. In Jesus. I want to also give us just space. Life is busy. Monday comes and we're all off and running. But this message should remind us of the the consequences of belief or unbelief. And we all can think of people in our life that are like these Jewish folks here that do not believe. And the Bible says the solution is not another sign or another chapter in the gospel, but it's the Holy Spirit opening the eyes of the blind. So I just want to give a space to pray for specific people that God would open their eyes to know him. And then finally, for those in the room that want to believe in Jesus, that see him for who he says he is, 
I just want to give you space to confess to God. 20 years ago, I was given an opportunity to give my life to Jesus in a time like this. And you just confess that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the one who has come to save. He is the one who has come to bring us out of darkness. He is the one who has come to fix the world, and I am part of the problem. My sin is part of the problem. I sit in darkness. I do what I shouldn't do. I say what I shouldn't say. And God, forgive me. And thank you for Jesus who has come to take away my judgment and take away the darkness and to bring me into a relationship with him and the Father forever. And we don't get Jesus because we're all that smart. We figure it out simply because we come to this moment where we confess and believe. Maybe for the first time. God, thank you. In Jesus' name I pray.